Welcome to Beyond Bitcoin, a podcast about all things digital assets, the global communities they are creating, the generations that are using and investing in them, and the challenges faced by the nations that are seeking to regulate them. The content of this program is not to be taken as investment advice. The opinions expressed in the program by the host and the guests are their personal opinions only. Remember, feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. My name is Derek Graham. I'm the CEO of Portal Asset Management, and my co-host is Nitin Gower, Managing Director of State Street Digital Assets. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world, and welcome along to another episode of Beyond Bitcoin, a show that delves deeply into things that are happening in this industry, which is never-ending, of course, and in waves on a constant basis, and also often looks at the basics of how this industry operates. Now, you that were listening last week heard me discuss the fact that I had a, a wonderful trip through to Tasmania. And what you may not know is that Tasmania is one of the giant hydroelectric power generation um, states of Australia. And of course, what comes with that is electricity at bountiful rates. And what could come with that is Bitcoin mining. So we've got a special guest along today who traveled with us on the tour of Tasmania. And he's an exceptional person because, of course, he owns a Porsche and drives a Porsche. So that immediately categorizes him as outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we'll welcome Chris Malloy along in a moment. Um, but may I also, of course, introduce my friend and colleague with us today, Nitin Gower. Hey, Nitin, how are you? Hey, Derek. And really looking forward to this conversation, which goes back to, as you mentioned, basic of the industry, the building blocks uh, and the infrastructure play, which, as you know, we all are tired of FTX conversations. So this is just the right time to have this chat. It's Glad so, so true. Um, so look, I'll give everyone a quick helicopter view like normal. And that is, you know, what is Bitcoin mining? So let's get some basic fundamentals right to begin with. So Bitcoin mining is a process of earning Bitcoin by running the verification process to validate Bitcoin transaction. The verification process requires complex uh, mathematical solving problems and competing with other miners to solve these calculations quickly or quicker than them, in fact. Bitcoin is mined using custom-built computer systems, which includes expensive hardware, although we'll discover soon a lot less expensive than they were a month or so ago. Miners are rewarded with Bitcoin for verifying blocks of transactions or solving hash um, rate, solving hashes on the blockchain. A hash is an alphanumeric code that is used to represent words, messages, and data of any length. Bitcoin mining's profitability is affected by costs of equipment and electricity and the difficult association with associated with mining and the mining value, of course, and the market value of Bitcoin. By the way, a cost-benefit analysis of Bitcoin, which of course includes these electrical costs and efficiencies of mining machines and the Bitcoin hash rate and difficulty rate, um, can also be found on an interesting website called Nice Hash. And so they've got a, a calculator there that you can plug in data and it gives you a broad view of the feasibility of your product. This whole infrastructure is just about numbers at the end of the day. How, how expensive are the equipment, the capital equipment? How expensive is the electricity? What is the cost of um, the, the, what is the difficulty associated with the hash? What is the price of Bitcoin? 
And of course, what is the cost of accommodation that you're getting um, to put all the equipment is? So it's a numbers game. But be that as it may, it interfaces with society, it interfaces with governments, it interfaces with considerations of greening aspects, etc. When I was travelling around and yarning to people about different things around Tasmania, Chris promptly said to me in the National Museum of Tasmania, which is a beautiful car museum, you must visit it, um, that this is the area that he's interested in. And I said, really, tell me more. And he said, my specialty is in the efficiencies of energy in data centres, infrastructure design, and wrapping business models around them. And at which stage I said, you really must come on our show and talk to us about this so that people can get a real understanding of what Bitcoin is, you know, and, and Bitcoin mining is. It's not the planet eater thing people think. And one of the things you said to me a little bit later was this beautiful phrase, Chris, that I just is my takeaway. And that is Bitcoin miners can be the dung beetles of the power industry, crawling around looking for unused power and power wastage. And so that's where we might start, Chris. A great way of being able to say this is what Bitcoin miners are doing. Great, Derek. Um, lovely to be with you. And thanks, Nitin and Derek, for inviting me along to the show this morning. It's a pleasure to meet you both and to be here. And yeah, Derek, it's, um, it was a wonderful trip in Tasmania. It's a shame that you left when the weather um, became sunny again, but never mind, we'll have to have you back again sometime. Um, yeah, the dung beetles of the, the power industry, it's probably not a bad coverall in terms of what Bitcoin mining actually sets out to achieve. Um, it's, it, it is a numbers game and it's quite a complex game as well. And a lot of people, I think, struggle with what the definition is. So thanks for, for using that nice, nice hash definition there. Um, they did a great job of it. One of the things I would say to start off with is really all it is, um, is a specific type of data center but it's a, shall we say, a very utilitarian sort of environment uh, compared to a traditional data centre like the hyperscalers or the enterprise providers of traditional data centre services. It's probably, strangely enough, it, it's probably not a bad comparison to look at it, Bitcoin mining that is, comparatively with things like Facebook and Google. Um, reason being that those two organisations don't have customers, really. You don't pay for a Google search. You don't pay to be on Facebook and take endless, endless photos of bacon and egg breakfast and things that people like to put up on social media. However, they're very conscious of their energy consumption. So you will find that um, Bitcoin mining operations are very similar in that regard. So... They're class leading in terms of efficiency, which is kind of counter to what a lot of the narrative is in the marketplace that, um, you know, we're using exorbitant amounts of power for Bitcoin mining and it's causing global warming and climate change, et cetera. Certainly it, um, it could, but it really depends on what the Bitcoin mine is connected to in terms of a power source and what its emissions profile looks like. So... Um, if you're connected to fossil fuel, coal, gas, et cetera, then clearly um, that's not a good thing, regardless of the industry that you're in. But with Bitcoin mining specifically, and, and why Tasmania? 
Um, look, I've worked in data centres for about 15 years in terms of design, build, operate on the traditional side of the fence around the infrastructure. Um, I started working in the Bitcoin mining space probably about a year or so ago, a little over a year now, about a year and a half. And I was struck by the differences between those two environments. Uh, but I also saw it as a great opportunity in many ways to, I guess, add some meaning to, to what Bitcoin does besides the token tokenization and, and digital currency side of things, it really, um, it really is an accelerator towards renewable um, energy supply. One of the main reasons why Tasmania, and Tasmania is an interesting place from the point of view that, as you pointed out, it's, it's using a lot of renewable energy. In fact, there are 30 hydroelectric plants in Tasmania. Um, more and more wind farms now um, coming up as well. And most recently, I've had conversations down here with uh, grid-scale solar implementations as well coming online. Tassie, I'll call it Tassie, the typical Australian <laughs> uh, colloquialism there, shortening the words. Um, Tassie has the unique, I guess, honour in one way of having declared itself um, and being measured and, and validated at 100% renewable generation two years ago this month. Um, but the government's not stopping there. The government locally here are aiming towards doubling that to 200% um, of state requirements in terms of renewable, renewable generation. There's an interesting paper that um, you or your, your viewers and listeners could look up called The Battery of a Nation, which is really a, a bit of a think tank discussion around how Tasmania uh, is positioning itself to provide effectively an energy battery for the rest of the nation. Um, that'll be facilitated through undersea links. We have BassLink at the moment, which is about 500 megawatt connection to the mainland, which ties us into the national electrical market. And we have Marinus Link, which is in the process of um, design implementation as we speak. And that'll be three times the capacity of BassLink when it's completed. Wow. So 500 kilometres off the mainland is this island that's generating all of its own power, but is about to generate over a period of time twice its power and export that through to the mainland, which is, you know, which of course is Australia. Uh, it's really quite a story. Uh, the, the issue then for Bitcoin miners in Tasmania and for anywhere, of course, is the availability of energy. It's bountiful there and is the cost of the energy, uh, and also is the sort of um, the opportunities that the, the main energy might providers might provide with regards to the extraordinary ability of Bitcoin to miners to be able to turn on and off their plants. And is that something that you think Tasmania can provide a benefit in to the Bitcoin mining process? Oh, most definitely. Um, the thing about it is that with, with this growth in renewable generation that we're seeing at the moment. Um, part of the challenge is grid stability. As we bring more renewables into the market, um, you know, you have that intermittency of supply, which creates peaks and troughs that don't necessarily and, and rarely do match with the demand profile. You know, if you've got a coal-fired plant, 
you, you, you know, you have the, the, guy, the people there with their shovels, you have the pile of coal, you get a phone call that says, okay, we need another two megawatts of energy and you just you stoke it full of coal and burn it and spin the turbines up until you reach that demand matching quotient. Mm. A little bit different um, if you're talking about a 100% renewable grid uh, you can't kind of look out the window, particularly at the moment, and say, okay, son, I need you to come up another five megawatts and, and deliver <laughs> solar and I need the wind to blow a little stronger. Yes. Um, obviously, with hydro, pumped hydro, you have a little more control there because you, you, you do have that mechanical assistance and that ability to sort of um, override nature, as it were, uh, by, by firing up pumps and pumping water back up to the top of the hydro and re reusing that water to regenerate, which is a lot of what the uh, power is in, in Tassie. But you're right. One of the things about Bitcoin mining specifically is with the cost is being able to, because, because with Bitcoin mining, you know, some of your, your viewers, listeners, et cetera, might have been Bitcoin mining for 10 years or more. Unlike me, I'm quite a newbie to it, so I'm, I'm still learning a lot. Um, but people started out by mining Bitcoin with their laptop computers. Mm. We then moved on to, uh, you know, gaming-type computers and GPUs, and now we have the latest generation, which are things called ASICs, A-S-I-C, which is application-specific integrated circuit. And these things are an incredibly powerful computer that are designed to do one job and one job only, and that is run the SHA-256 algorithm, which is what Bitcoin mining is carried out on. So, but in order to do this and, and sort of tying back into Nitin's um, comment about proof of work before, all of these, I th look, I liken it to a big game of bingo. Okay, there's <laughs> millions of computers around the world, literally decentralized, which is what we love about Bitcoin, all playing a game of bingo. When one computer comes up and says bingo, the game stops, the block is set, um, and we start another, another round of bingo. It's kind of like that on a grand scale. Perfect. Now, with the cost, um, obviously energy is the, big, is the big input cost into Bitcoin mining. Um, it's by far and away the highest operational cost that Bitcoin mining has to incur. And because we're now at a point where the network is, I think, the record network hash rate, which is the amount of processing power, if you like, in total of the Bitcoin network, uh, crossed over 300 exahash per second um, a few months ago. And it's sitting now, I think, at about 250, 270, something like that. Right? 262. Yeah. Thanks, Nitin, around there. And look, that varies all the time. Um, with, with this extended bear market, obviously, um, some miners are finding it incredibly difficult to stay uh, operational and profitable. So there's a challenge there. But certainly, um, it's, it's a numbers game in as far as the bigger your mining environment, the more of the collective hash rate you control and therefore the higher likelihood you have of have being more successful at the big game of bingo that I was talking about before. <laughs> so, so really scale is everything with this. Scale is also important from a cost point benefit analysis point of view when you're modelling what 
um, what sort of power purchasing agreement you're going to be seeking from an energy provider. So if you can rock up and say, look, I'd like half a gigawatt of energy, you're going to attract a bit of attention, which means you're also going to be able to negotiate that wholesale price more effectively than if you walked up and said, I need five megawatts or two megawatts or something like that. It's, it's not even viable to do that from a financial modelling point of view. So we've, we've reached a point with Bitcoin mining where really for it to be a, a profitable, viable business, you have to be talking tens of megawatts to be a serious player and to be making that, a, I guess, a returning business um, of any magnitude where you can employ people and, and develop a business strategy along that. Now, that's fascinating, Chris, and I'm, I have two-part questions for you, actually. I'm always curious in how, what's the, what, you know, what's all our journeys to Bitcoin? And in this case, as you describe, you're designing and building and operating data centers. At what point you realize that Bitcoin is, one, interesting, and second thing is I'm going to dedicate a part of my career in Bitcoin. And that's interesting for two reasons. One is because I think you're at the very foundation of this industry. You're you're the sort of infrastructure that's holding this industry together um, and essentially giving the ammunition to builders to build on top of the infrastructure that you're enabling for them. And what's interesting about this industry is it's rapidly shifting and changing. And, and the second part of my question is, and this is a bit technical question from your perspective is, you know, is the fact that Bitcoin has a very specific, and you mentioned ASICs, very specific compute model. And I call it a perfect storm because there's no unused capacity at any given point in time. It's high CPU, high memory, high network IO intensive, which consumes a lot of power as you, as you, as you know. So have you seen any significant shifts in designing data centers for typical OLTP or online transaction processing like Facebook and banking and everything else versus Bitcoin that that prompts you to look into different design pattern, different design modeling, both in terms of energy, but also in terms of square footage and type of computing and everything you need. And the reason I'm asking this is, is the reutilization. Uh, suddenly you're going after very specific compute, just sharp one two fifty six, as you mentioned with ASIC, versus what the normal CPU is, general purpose computing. I can go through any workloads that go through it. Uh, love to understand that piece. And I have a follow on it. I'll, I'll pause here to get your thoughts for the follow-on uh, question. Okay, sure. Thanks, Nitin. Um, yes, certainly with the efficiency side of things, as I mentioned, they are running very lean and efficient, I would say, generally. Um, with, with the career move, um, look, that was a big step. I was saying to Derek, I, I'm not going to give away my age, but uh, not as young as you two young gentlemen there, and as you can probably see from the, although Derek and I do go to the same hairdresser these days. Um, what, um, what really drew me to this industry was, I guess, you know, I've spent many years building up data centres, designing data centres for cloud, for all sorts of applications, business and finance, even military applications, all sorts of things. Um, and I saw this as an opportunity where we could sort of marry the energy debate, which is going to be one of the biggest challenges to humanity going forward. I don't think that's an overstatement. Um, with compute power, 
and and through that marriage actually have a net benefit flow in both directions because the thing about bitcoin mining is we're you know again being a large user so if if we turned on a a system that was say a 50 megawatt site there are only the only other people or organizations that would use 50 megawatts out there tend to be large process engineering firms like steel manufacturing or uh, aluminium smelting or something of that order. Now, the problem there is if you're talking about grid is being able to switch the thing off um, efficiently with any sort of uh, speed if the grid needs that energy that's being used by that uh, process. You could be talking about hours. With a, a 50 megawatt Bitcoin mine, it's not unusual to have capability to be able to shut down and power up to, from zero to full load in less than a minute. Um, so what, what that does, that, that brings you in line with that kind of thinking then of, okay, if I've got a, a variable intermittent supply of wind and solar that's varying on a, on a dynamic uh, playing field, then I now have a load that can get pretty close to matching that dynamic supply um, wind up and wind down. So what that then allows is the Bitcoin miner, if they're a good actor, which most are, um, can form strong partnerships with the energy supply authorities and the grid distribution and, and generation assets and say, look, we'll tell you when, we'll, we'll give you can't blanch access to our data. We'll show you what our, our uh, energy use profile looks like on a real-time basis. That'll allow you to make more efficient use of your energy assets because, look, I had the experience of going through connecting one of these data centres and it's fair to say that the time required to go through a connection agreement is significant. And, you know, there's a lot of planning and design and effort goes into it. So that's that's a real factor in terms of getting a, a business up and running, obviously, or additional sites. But the other thing about it is that when the allocation came through, the language of a lot of the energy supply authorities is the language of, I have a set of wires here that can deliver X. Let's call it 10 megawatts. I've already got seven of those megawatts spoken for by XYZ company and ABC company. So you're coming along, so I have three left to give you. But they're not monitoring the other seven for efficiency. They just allocate it and say that seven is spoken for. Um, real world examples, I've seen cases where allocations have been put aside for specific industries uh, and they're using 10% or 20% of that allocation, which means all of that energy, um, capital, uh, equipment, et cetera, is sitting there idle, not actually being maximised and utilised. So there's an ROI opportunity for grid operators and Bitcoin miners to come together and through good dialogue and, and data and software actually be able to help one another make better use of the grid, which is a scarce asset and an expensive asset these days. So See, what fascinates know. me with that statement is this, and that is that all, or maybe many, depending on the dynamics of their business model, uh, major power supplies in the world should have Bitcoin plants bolted to their generators. 
because if they're running these excess programs, um, <clears throat> what do you call them? Frequency controlled ancillary services, I mm -hmm. think you call them. Um, wow, that's just, impressive, Derek. That's that's impressive. That's what you call uh, having notes next to the screen. <laughs> <laughs> and so, 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 um, FCAS um, uh, is this unusual thing where they suddenly need to offload power, and and they need to offload that power. And as I understand it, sometimes they'll pay for that power to be offloaded, or pay for you to stop um, taking power if necessary. Um, so, so there's two parts there. A is I'm intrigued that they'll pay for you to not use their power. Um, and B is why isn't every major power generator with these fluctuating power consumptions not running major Bitcoin mining plants next to them? They don't have to care about the industry. They're just, this is just another way for them to utilize and get return on, on profit when they've got excess power. Doesn't that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, FCAS is, is an income stream that's worth pursuing if you're a Bitcoin miner um, because the stakes have become quite high. The faster, the way it works, Derek and Newton, is the faster you can switch down and, and switch on, the more you get rewarded for that. So the contracts are, are geared on time. And I think the fastest one at the moment, and I, I stand corrected if I've got it wrong, if anybody from the energy markets, which I'm not, so I'm not an expert in this field, but um, I think it's around two minutes they're looking at. I heard somebody in a conversation six months ago talking about playing it less than a minute. Um, so it, it is a, a market in its own right. So um, to get that in perspective, it's like turning off an entire steel mill production in 60 seconds. Correct. Yep. It's, wow. it's impressive. That's amazing. And quite scary. That is scary. So, so help me understand this, right? And this is a very interesting time to have this conversation, Chris, because your industry, and, and it's interesting because I listened to a few podcasts during my exercise, during my drives, and almost 40, 50% of the podcasts I listen to have focused on mining and energy in this time, both in terms of of course, the cost of energy is a big equation of the whole thing, the industry itself. And what's interesting during this time, whether you take Core Scientific, Argo, some of these are big names that have been in the industry for quite some time, Stronghold, CleanSpark, TerraWolf, uh, Marathon, they all are in, in red, like really, really, you know, they're down 90%, 92%. Uh, at the brink of bankruptcy in some cases. Uh, and in some cases, I think the Marathon Digital, which is one of the big ones, has looked into saying that ballpark 20% or so will be at the risk of going bankrupt, which is a significant challenge, even though I think Bitcoin as software, Bitcoin as a system is designed to cope up with these blips, right? It's designed to adjust difficulty mining and you know and and difficulty and adjust the hash rate to ensure that the right miners are incentivized enough to be able to produce these mining entities in this tough economic climate and this is a global system in general right in the sense that it's very little arbitrage opportunities they're generally at equilibrium in terms of you know the smart money moving where the power is cheap where the assets are cheap besides the investment that you made into these and this was my questioning of data center design you made this investment to ASICs, which can be used to just for a few things. And I just want to get your perspective on the economics of this, uh, given the energy situation we're in, given the upfront investment you'd have to make. It's quite heavy. 
yeah. uh, from an investment perspective. And and yes, you reap the rewards when markets are high, but in a time like this, when the industry is going through, in many cases, tough times, uh, how do you? What's your? You know, what's your? What what are the things that keeps you positive? Uh, and continuing and pursuing this. And God bless you for that, by the way. Sorry. <laughs> and God bless you for that, because we do need miners. We do need the infrastructure. Yeah, look, it's that's a really good question, Nitin. Uh, one of the things I, I think you raised there, the cost, if you, you know, you look at studies and things from the Uptime Institute, et cetera, a traditional hyperscale data center or enterprise facility you know, people talk in um, millions of dollars per megawatt of infrastructure. This is probably not a bad way to, to deal with it. Um, makes it a lot more digestible from a non-technical point of view as well. So if we if we just said that arguably, you know, best in class hyperscale like a, um, who would we talk about? Someone like an XDC, someone like an Equinix, someone like um, Air Trunk, you know, they're building facilities, they're popping up facilities, traditional, well, when I say traditional hyperscale cloud type facilities at the rate of about one every six months, if not faster. And we're talking about breaking ground to operational in six months. And they're turning on um, well over 100 megawatts on average in these facilities now these days. I mean, five years ago, 20 megawatts was a big site. Now it's just like ho-hum. Um, and they're rerouting major power distribution lines to facilitate these facilities as well. So all of the heavy equipment that goes with that, like big transformers, large cooling equipment, et cetera, you're looking at a cost of anywhere from about four to nine million per megawatt for those traditional, you know, tier-rated uptime um, compliant type data centers. If we looked at a, a, a Bitcoin mine and this sort of stripped down approach that I mentioned before, you're talking about less than 2 million um, per megawatt. That's capital cost to get up and running in, in infrastructure. And once you've sunken that investment, getting around to your question around what the application is sitting within the data hall, then what I've seen happen, and, and even locally down here in Launceston, there's a, a mining company down here called Firmus. Um, they've been running for a while. Now, their rhetoric 12 months ago on their website was a little different to what it is now. So there's more of a focus from them now around their cloud offerings rather than their mining offerings. Doesn't mean they're not mining anymore. But so I guess if you design your facility in a modular scalable, um, incremental way, then you have the ability to populate that data hall with any number of types of compute load. And that could be traditional server-based um, enterprise type equipment and offer those types of services um, all the way through to Bitcoin mining. I think the thing about Bitcoin mining and AI, et cetera, is it's a new marketplace in terms of compute high density compute from the point of view that it's location agnostic. You know, yeah. you, the traditional names that I mentioned before, they're going to be hunting down real estate in CBD type locations or very close to where their customer base is, which mm -hmm. tend to be enterprise, government, et cetera. So you'll find 
you know, large gatherings of data centres in specific areas on the outskirts of large metro areas. The big difference with Bitcoin mining is you'll find Bitcoin mines in remote areas that are four-wheel drive access only, and that might just wow. be a module sitting in a paddock somewhere churning out Bitcoin. Um, and, you, and in the case of, as I said, Tasmania or many other locations, the reason it's in that location is because it's co-located with the renewable generator, be that solar, wind or hydro. So it, the, the, the thing about it is with Web3 and everything that that entails, so a broader yeah. discussion around compute, then yeah. what we see in the data center universe is edge computing is on the rise. We can't have autonomous vehicles. We can't have those real-time activities happening in remote locations without local compute. So that means telecommunications, that means local processing power of of a certain magnitude. So a Bitcoin mine remotely located actually fulfills another potential purpose for local communities, and that is provides the the opportunity, at least, if the infrastructure is designed um, thoughtfully, um, to provide edge compute, you know, assistance to agricultural automation systems, for example, that have to be real time. So soil monitoring for moisture, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole bunch of compute that can be done real time, but there's also then the opportunity to transport um, non-real time large compute work like um, let's say BOM, Bureau of Meteorology um, modeling data, that they might have projects at CSIRO or the BOM, that require a large compute load to be carried out to give them a solution. And that doesn't necessarily have to happen in real time. So you could run that in a remote location and save yourself and reduce cost as a result of the fact that you're connected to renewables. Um, You're on cheaper real estate, uh, generally because you're in the middle of nowhere. That's true. Uh, And then when the load is complete, you can ship that back. And if you've got to switch down and switch up uh, to meet the needs of the local grid, then that's also a management task that can be completed uh, in that type of environment. So it's just, it's quite a different way of operating. Yeah. Uh, no, Chris, so so that's that's brilliant. And I, I'll tell you this, that I, I share that perspective wholeheartedly is the utility of this. And I've always said this to many of the past technology companies is that if you look at the Bitcoin mining companies, the companies that are hosting nodes, on behalf of clients, these are new age Web3 or cloud companies. Not only the edge computing phenomenon that you mentioned, but also it's the support infrastructure needed for truly creator-led economies. If you get down to that point where I would like to host a node, I would like to host some infrastructure. Obviously, I'm not going to do them in the garage anymore. I need I need a cloud-like infrastructure, which is virtualized or, or allows me the avenue to be able to go to the specialized infrastructure, both hardware and software stack to participate in these economic systems. So I think that is something which is spot on and it's it's quite brilliant. And and one more comment before I pass it back to, to, to Derek is the utility of it, which is uh, with the ETH merge, which shifted from proof of work to proof of stake. This was a big, big question in the industry. And I think exactly to your point, a lot of the Ethereum miners after a very contentious sort of uh, separation, I would say, uh, when they had to go through and realizing that their sort of you know their earnings are being impacted because of the of the merge, 
they have repurposed themselves for exactly the use case that you mentioned is you know for specific AI and machine learning workloads, uh, specialized data centers because they have made all this investment to ASICs and chipsets that are apt and applicable to a lot of crypto and security applications, which may not be mining, but they still are applicable to those those advanced use cases. So that's really refreshing to hear you you, you share the same perspective as well, Chris. So I'll pause here, Tarek. So we started this conversation with discussing dung beetles and the fact that we're routing out any opportunity where there's power at a reasonable price um, and there's opportunity. Chris, I want you to tell us the story about going down a real mine and what you discovered down there and how that played out. Oh, okay. This one, you'll be dining out on this for ages. And by the way, I'm thinking of changing my LinkedIn profile photo to that of a dung beetle after this conversation. But anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, one, look, one of the... I've got to be careful what I say here, but it, it, this is a real story um, that Derek alludes to there. Um, as we know, China shut down uh, Bitcoin mining and that led to... Uh, I guess, a certain cohort relocating to other parts of the world. Um, I can't say where exactly, but I am aware of a situation where an actual hole-in-the-ground digging type mine had a Bitcoin mining setup, shall we call it, a module, more or less a shipping container, sitting in the bush, churning out Bitcoin, um, in the middle of nowhere, and it was discovered by a colleague of mine, and he was telling me that when he went there he and he discovered this, number one, it was it's generally illegal to do that uh, on a mining lease. So he ordered that, um, that the thing be decommissioned. As he was having it decommissioned by a, an on-site electrician, he also noticed that there was a security camera mounted on a pole pointed directly at this shipping container. And within half an hour, he got a phone call on his mobile phone from a nice Chinese gentleman in somewhere in Australia saying, you need to switch my equipment back on. You can't touch my equipment. Uh, to which he said, I'm, I'm working on behalf of the owners and I can do whatever I need to do. And so... <laughs> So, yeah, so they're springing up in all sorts of locations, these clandestine little operations that we see. One of the things was that he commented too, just on a point of technology and, and why, I guess, Bitcoin mining is actually leading the charge with, with another change in technology that's going to filter its way into the, the big end of town more and more as we go forward, which is immersion cooling. So... Mm. The rig that I was talking about in out in the bushes in the mine, that was air-cooled. So one of the things that drew my colleagues' attention to this thing in the first place was this howling noise of all of these fans coming from the bushes. And Nitin mentioned you're not going to mine it in your garage these days. That's for sure, because if you bought an Antminer S19 um, Pro and plugged it in in your garage, you'd be evicted very quickly because they're very, very loud. Um, so what, what you're seeing now is most of the big uh, enterprise-grade and publicly listed Bitcoin miners are, um, are going towards immersion cooling, which gives uh, insane amounts of um, 
energy density by comparison to anything you can do with air cooled. Uh, so we're seeing a lot of a lot of that happening at the moment. This migration, and literally what it is, and it's quite unnerving when you do it. And having done this several times, I'm kind of used to it, but it's still quite terrifying. Is you take imagine taking a computer that weighs about 16 kilograms, so they're quite heavy, very dense, with all the lights flashing and lowering it into a, a, a vat of liquid with the lights flashing. It just pushes against every natural um, uh, re reaction you have in your, your being to, to do that, but it's incredibly efficient. So you have these engineered fluids which um, will come out, of a, come out of a fully operational mining uh, environment at about 50 degrees Celsius. Now, 50 degrees Celsius in a liquid form, if you put it through a heat exchanger and then push it into water, for example, you've now got hot water. Now, you can use that for manufacturing processes. You've got a second stage of heat because one of the things for certain is if you, you use a lot of energy, you create a lot of waste heat. So there are massive opportunities to uh, create heat reuse programs as well, particularly in cold climates like down here. Mm. And that's the other reason why Tassie is so popular, by the way, I didn't mention it before is generally speaking from an efficiency point of view you want a cold climate for your data center mm. um, or cool climate um, that is because you then rely less on on energy for mechanical cooling air condition so so chris there's so much to learn here this is this is a never-ending topic what people often consider to be the bland world of bitcoin mining in fact is an extraordinary world of constant um, business model tweaking, uh, constantly improving technology, geopolitical uh, environments, and, and just the need to be able to place these things in highly efficient green, if possible, locations and their byproduct, like you're talking about there with immersing them in diametric um, you know, fluids, which is extraordinary. Um, and that's going to happen and be impacted by edge computing. And it's also going to require on the, on, the, on, the, on the negative side, it's going to impact them on the edge computing because there'll be more edge computing and less needed for data centers. But there's going to be more need for data centers when you're looking at the amount of data we're consuming generally across the board. So this is going to be a constant ongoing um, area of, of, of improvement and um, you know, generally of, of leading edge technology. And, and I think that's going to keep you somewhat busy along the way. So if listeners want to contact Chris Malloy, you can do so. He's the founder at Digital Infrastructure and Associates. Um, you can find him on LinkedIn, or if you want, you can just ping us along the way and we'll introduce you to, to Chris. We thank you so much for joining us and, uh, and delighted to have caught up with you in Tasmania and enjoyed the opportunity to drive around that and yarn about Bitcoin mining at the same time as looking at these huge hydroelectric plants that, that operate down there. Thank you indeed, Chris, and thank you, of course, for being with us again, my friend and colleague, Nitin, and uh, until next week. Thank you, Derek. Chris, thank you again. Thank you, Derek. Thank you, Nitin. Wonderful to have spent some time with you. Good on you. Bye for now, gents. Bye. We hope you enjoyed our weekly conversation. If you have any questions, comments, or suggested topics, please contact Nitin Gower or myself on the emails displayed here or via our LinkedIn profiles. Feel free to subscribe and share with like-minded friends. Stay well, inquisitive, and engaged. See you next week.